Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is always Oscar season. I'm Mike. And I'm Brian. In this show, we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and decide whether to keep it or kick it from its Oscar pedestal. But could we really kick today's movie, Brian, about the Holocaust? (laughs) Don't you think that would be a little disrespectful? It would be. It would be quite disrespectful, so I'll be curious to see what you do. We'll have to wait and see. In 2002, the nominees for Best Picture were The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, The Hours, Chicago, Gangs of New York, and today's movie, The Pianist, directed by Roman Polanski. Let's hear the trailer. This is the greatest pianist in Poland, maybe the whole world. No one plays Chopin like you. I hope that's a compliment. By order of the governor of the Warsaw district, there will be created a Jewish district in which all Jews will have to reside. You must get away at once. I'm not leaving. Can't I take my chances here? But I have to keep moving here. The Germans are hunting down indiscriminately now. Keep as quiet as possible. No one knows you're here. I want to help. I want to do something. Don't let them get you alive. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? short one yeah the pianist won three oscars best actor adrian brody best director roman polanski and best writing for adapted screenplay ronald harwood it was also nominated for four best picture cinematography costume design and editing uh side note adrian brody was the youngest person to date to win best actor at 29 that surprised really? me huh that really surprised me because are there not talented 25 year old actors out there if only Haley joel osman would have taken <laughs> one home also roman polanski was famously not present to accept this award yeah he was out of the country had been since 1978 so harrison ford who presented it accepted it on his behalf so we have to at least mention Roman Polanski. We and do. His, we his do. horrible history. Mm-hmm. So he served 42 days in prison for sex with a 13 year old in 1977. He was going to get off with a plea bargain and some psych- psychiatric treatment. But then he heard that the judge had threatened to put him in jail for 50 years. So even though that wouldn't have been legal for the judge to do, Polanski got scared. He didn't trust the judge. So he left the country. And as from what I can understand, he has not been back since. The victim, the 13-year-old at the time, sued him 11 years later, but then in 2008, she said she didn't want any more punishment for him, so that was kind of interesting. He was arrested in 2009 in Switzerland and served two months in jail there before he was again declared free, and a lot of movie makers at the time defended him, and that was a big you know, uh, controversy at the time. But he still has this legal trouble if he returns to the U.S., and with the hashtag MeToo movement, He was removed from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in 2018. And also since then, he's been accused of several other sexual relationships with minors. 
So my question to you, this is not my you know, question of truth, but my question to you is, yeah. how does that impact your experience with this movie? Do you wish you didn't know that? <laughs> I, I haven't thought about whether or not I, I wish I hadn't noted it. No. Uh, noted. <laughs> I'm starting off Nude great. It. Yeah. Um, but I guess I wish I didn't know it yeah. just because it is complicating and it is depressing. But I, honestly, I just tried to completely separate it yeah. from the art itself because it's otherwise what you know what are we doing we're striking history from the books and and yeah that doesn't seem like a good path to take it's something we've talked about more than once because it seems that movie makers have gotten into some trouble over the years yeah um but it's true of of art and politicians and rulers and kings and you know going back throughout history we we know we're dealing with with flawed people this seems particularly egregious, you know, mm -hmm. when you're talking about it. And you don't want to say, if you say, another way to ask the question is, if you say this is a great movie, does that condone what he did? No. And you have to say no. N not at you all. You can't say that it's condoning. So we have we, we just have to do our best in our minds to separate it and evaluate the art for what it is. Yeah. Even though there has to be sort of an asterisk, unfortunately. In a way. But, to me... The, the more interesting question is if this movie was made today, how would it be received? And yeah. I feel like it would be received very, very differently. More, Roman Polanski would never win Best Picture no. with that as a cloud over him it, for the, you know, it just wouldn't happen. No, I mean, that that seems like a like a fairy tale living yeah. in 2021 which that I would, that would happen. Which I would have to say, I think that that's probably a good thing. I, Even I, though it comes back to the same yeah. question, should you separate it out or yeah. not? In this instance, I feel like I agree with you. You know, I'm yeah. sort of on the other side of this conversation, mm -hmm. but I feel like I can appreciate the art separate from the artist. But do I need to celebrate him publicly at a ceremony? Yeah. I, I don't think I need to do that. You <laughs> the know? greatest director, but was he that year? Uh, Maybe he was. Hmm. Uh, Probably only rivaled by the hours. Yeah, Stephen I don't Daldry. know. I don't know if I would agree with that, <laughs> but I mean, it is a it's a good question. It's definitely like yeah. a thought experiment to me more than more than a real life, yeah. tangible thing. You know, something actionable. Uh, but yeah, it, we have to bring it up. We have to talk yeah. about it at least to sort of say now we can dismiss it and talk Otherwise, about the art. People will boycott Best Picture. This <laughs> yeah. we don't want that to happen. Cancel. Coming up in Best Picture, this we will give our Farley Awards for the most awesome moment of the movie. Which, by the way, the Chris Farley sketch on SNL from which this comes mm -hmm. was brought up to me by a, a guy in, this, in an interview <laughs> that I was doing, and I was like, I know that, I know that skit. We talk about it all the time in our podcast. It's famous. It's we're on gonna, the show. We're going to give our golden takes because we don't just give hot takes mm -mm 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 -mm. on Best Picture of This. Golden or not. Golden or nothing. Uh, we're also going to ask each other one question that will be designed to open the pickle can of truth of this movie. <laughs> Again, hard to make a good joke about Holocaust. Yeah, maybe. I think you picked a good one, though, because yeah, I, I never would have guessed that, <laughs> that we were going to be having the pickle can there. Um, we will also imagine what might have been. Maybe there's other actors. Maybe those actors could have been in different movies. That's always fun to talk about. We're going to talk trivia. And then the big reveal. Will you keep this movie or kick it from the top five of 2002? But first, first, our Farley Awards for the most awesome moment of the movie. And for me, I'm just going to start right at the beginning, Brian, the very first opening sequence. We open with real black and white footage of Warsaw in 1939. Then we're in the studio, Adrian Brody, 
playing the piano and there's an explosion outside. He jumps, but he doesn't stop playing. Then there's another louder explosion. Rubble falls from the ceiling onto his head and he doesn't stop playing. Mm -hmm. The producers on the other side of the glass leave. They're starting to get a little bit worried. They tell him to come. He shakes his head. No, doesn't stop playing. Not until an explosion blows the wall clear open, which is a, I mean, what a crazy way to open this movie where it's, it's like you can kind of hear the explosions getting faster, but then to get that sort of clearly practical effect right out of the gate coming at the camera was just a crazy thing to see. But it is a brilliant opening. It's so totally good. Brilliant. And during all of that, I love that he's not freaking out. He's even of sound mind enough when he leaves the theater to fall for a woman that he meets, that he kind mm-hmm. of bumps into while he's leaving. And I, I think to me that that was the takeaway is watching this time, because I had seen this before, it really struck me how not only him, but in his entire family are completely unpanicked about this. You know, they, they sort of talk about it um, in terms of newspaper headlines. The father gets the newspaper, who reads it aloud to the family, and then they all sort of react to one by one these civil liberties being taken away. And the way that they discuss it is just so matter-of-factly, you know, should I take these family pictures with me when I flee my home? Where should we hide the money so that mm-hmm. we can make sure that the Nazis don't steal it? And I don't know, I just really got the sense this time that you understand how this can escalate, how, you know, one little concession can lead to another little concession. And during all the time, we understand the implications. We we know where this is going. We know what this means when these freedoms get taken away, where they're eventually going to end up. But they don't know that. And it kind of, it was like revelatory to me in a way that watching it in, watching it unfold so gradually, it, it just offers this whole new perspective where we don't just jump right to the camps and right to the tragedy. We, dr- we jump to sort of the world changing so slowly around them that they convince themselves that it's not changing until it's too late. Yeah. It's such a great turn. It is. It, that's, I think some of the, the genius of the movie is, is, is being so intimately in that family's point of view, Yes, the Jewish family. And, uh, it, it, it happens so slowly. You're right. Some of the newspaper clippings were like, Jewish people are only allowed to have X amount of dollars to their name. And then we find out they're not allowed to be in restaurants. And we find out all of these things little by little. Now they're not allowed to walk in the park. They're not allowed to walk on the same sidewalk mm-hmm. as the other people. They need to walk in the gutter. And then a Nazi officer slaps his dad on the street for no good reason. His dad just takes it, picks up his bags, walks away. So then by the time they're told to flee to the ghettos, we're like, yeah, of course that they're fleeing to the ghettos. But at the same time, we're kind of like... We're not surprised by it. It seems inevitable, but we understand how they sort of didn't see it coming. There, it's interesting with um, movies about World War II with that are you know so focused on the Nazis specifically, mm-hmm. the Nazis and the Holocaust. Is that um, it's such a clear uh, good versus evil yeah. storyline. I think that's one reason why it's revisited so often you know there's there's great movies about like gray evil and good Mm -hmm. but these are so stark just pure black and white you know we know that the nazis were doing something that was evil and wrong um and uh yeah anyway so It, it it all goes back to that initial piano scene it's like yeah there are bombs exploding outside outside of the studio but we're safe in here you know, just because they're they're close doesn't mean that we're in any real danger. It's mm-hmm. that it's that whole way of tricking yourself that you're safe until it's too late and you realize there's no escape from it. Mm-hmm. So my Farley Award is when Adrian Brody, who plays the pianist, 
um, and his family are walking uh, toward the, those trains that you mentioned. And um, there's this shaft of light behind him that in some movies could be seen as sort of melodramatic, I think, but it's, it's, it's natural. It's like the camera angle just happened to catch it perfectly, but it's, it works to such dramatic effect. It's this, it's this shaft of light behind him as he's walking with his sister. And he says, I wish I knew you better. Mm, it's yeah. like, this is a strange time to say this, but I wish I knew you better. And that really struck me because I felt that way about people in my own family over, you know, my own sisters, my own um, children sometimes even like, I wish I knew you as a, you know, knew your personality better, even though I'm around them a lot. That's what I think what he's experiencing. Yeah. Um, he, he lives in the same house, but he doesn't feel like he knows her that well. You, you take her for granted the yes. same way that they take their freedom for granted. Exactly. And now in the time when, you know, there's this impending tragedy, time is running out on the time when you could, you know, make extra effort to have a really good, meaningful conversation with her. It's pretty much time is time is is over. But um, so I thought that was very relatable, and it was extremely poignant in that in that moment. Um, I also um, loved the uh, one of my favorite moments of the whole movie is the the piano in the closing credits. Oh yeah, you, that's a good one. You watch it's like close up of his hands. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, is it possible that that music is coming from that? Like. It's, it seems it's the mastery of the piano is so impressive and, uh, you don't usually get to watch anybody play piano. Like just, you'd have to be two feet away from a pianist playing that Mm -hmm. and you don't ever see that, but Polanski just keeps the camera right on the guy's hands, um, playing that. And I also, you shared this, uh, picture, the screenshot on Facebook, um, on our best picture, this Facebook page, but when Adrian Brody is walking through this washed out gray rubble city, yeah. ruins of Cities a city. Cities in total ruins. And the camera is just way far out, super long shot. He's tiny on the screen and just starting to walk through the the city. It's it creates a scale. Breathtaking. And and it's interesting too that both of our best moments are these small, quiet things, yeah. you know, yeah, very subtle. In a movie that's packed with these awesome set pieces. And the, the, I don't know, the body count, you know, that just, it slowly happens. You got, at one point, you know, he's walking down the street and there's a dead body in the way and no one is doing anything about it, just walking around the dead body. And then slowly over, as the movie progresses, you see that there's actually six bodies in the street and people are just getting shot left and right. And so I have to ask my question that I ask every movie. Is this a horror movie? Is this a horror movie? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is horrific. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it definitely gave me a um, a visceral sensation yeah. that I don't get in a lot of Holocaust movies. I mean, every Holocaust yeah. movie you could yeah. argue is made to give you that in order to charge so you up with shame and guilt. Horror movie, and that's that's like the emotional impact, which may or may not be fair. Mm-hmm. I. I I don't know if it is, you know, it kind of crosses over into that same conversation we've had a lot of times about um, real life movies based off of real life being imbued with this sort of false sense of significance. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the directing, the movie making has to be good to make those moments pay off. And I think that's the strength of this one, that it's not just sort of, uh, hey, remember how awful this was and now feel bad about it and then confuse you feeling bad about it with this movie being powerful. Mm hmm. 
Golden takes. Mike, what is your golden take about the pianist? My golden take, I guess we're already kind of talking about it. There's no such thing as an important movie. You know, we've <laughs> talked about this before, but I think that the Holocaust movie as like a genre, if you want to call it that, is mm-hmm. at the apex of this theory. So I did a little bit of digging just to kind of get a better handle on 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 what this means. And if we estimate that there are about a thousand movies made per year and about 900 came out in just North America in 2018. So a thousand is conservative. And there are about 24 Oscar categories. The chance of being nominated for anything is two and a half percent. So Rich Brownstein, a lecturer. Oh, I just lost my place. A lecturer at the International School for Holocaust Studies. He wrote in the in the Jerusalem Post that of 242 Holocaust features ever made between 1945 and 20, 44 were nominated for Oscars. That's over 18% of the ones that were made mm-hmm. compared to that 2.5% figure I just gave you. If we dig deeper, of just 64 American-produced Holocaust films made during that time, 21 were nominated. That's wow. 32%. 32% mm. of the American movies about the Holocaust so that came out you, in that time span. What do you make of that? I don't think that those numbers tell the whole story for one. But I kept thinking what I always think watching a Holocaust movie is how could this have happened? You know, it doesn't seem real. And then I wondered, well, what if it weren't real? You know, what if we lived in a world where the Holocaust never happened and some writer dreamed up this exact story for a script? Or what if we used the same story, but made it a sci-fi. You know, I kind of thought about District 9 in that sense. Replaced Jewish people with aliens, but had them in the same setting. Would the movie have the same power? I think definitively no. I agree, 100%. It wouldn't. <laughs> I don't think so, because everything that we see here, especially in the first half... I was a little nervous that you are going to go the other way on that. <laughs> no, I, no I, I think that it all comes back to that real-life thing where we there's shame and guilt associated that we that's, that's ingrained. It's in our DNA. We cannot escape it. And so when we see this on screen, we can't help but have that emotional reaction. But everything in the first half of this movie... It seems, seems to be played up for shock value. We have characters stepping over dead bodies in the streets nonchalantly, like you said. We have cops beating children unconscious. We have uh, shooting a woman, a woman point blank in the head because she respectfully asked the Nazis where they were taking her. The wheelchair sh- scene is yeah. maybe the most horrific scene in it, this movie. It is, it is horrible. Nazis, yeah. they invade this apartment they throw a grandfather in a wheelchair off of a balcony in front of a family. They kill the rest of the family in the street. And then as they're driving away, they run over the bodies. It's like, just when you think it can't get worse, just that little cherry on top makes it even worse. And there's no, I don't remember that exact scene about the music, but I, I know, I feel like there's a lot of attempt to make it feel, there's a lot of realism to the shooting. Yeah. Uh, meaning the, the camera work, I mean. Because yeah, yeah. He doesn't play it up. He does. He doesn't There's make no it hyper dramatic. No There's close-ups. no close-ups. The, the camera angle. The camera is always in the apartment window, three stories up. Yes. From the whole movie, when you see the violence in the streets, just about the whole everything, mm-hmm. it's up high, so that you really do feel like this is real life. You wouldn't see a war. You wouldn't experience a war. From I was thinking about this movie compared to Black Hawk Down, uh, the Ridley Scott um, directed movie that he, I, th- I don't know if he won. I forget what. Anyway, it was nominated for multiple things. But in there, the camera in the street battles is like on the hip of the soldiers. 
and it's jostling around and you're running around, you know, and seeing like uh, just crazy editing and cuts and, and everything. In this movie, it's like a stationary camera three stories up yep. looking down on it. Yep. It's a really fascinating contrast. They're both powerful in different ways, but this is like, a, it feels in a way more real than being down on the street. Oh yeah, it, it's completely a matter of fact, which makes it scarier because it almost makes it feel like a documentary. But mm -hmm. also if you think about that scene, we have... We're, we're Adrian Brody's perspective. We're looking through the window. And that mirrors another scene where he's looking through a window, watching this kind of mini resistance happening. Mm -hmm. So he's hiding in this apartment. No one really knows he's there. And over the wall, you have all of these Jewish people who are getting together and using guns that, you know, people have basically smuggled them to start this kind of uprising. They're throwing grenades from the windows. They're shooting from the windows. And the Nazis now are shooting back. We're watching this whole thing framed on the outside by this small bedroom window that Adrian Brody is looking out of. And we see the Nazis starting to shoot back. We see them starting to get some of their friends and now there are more Nazis. And then we see them get a tank. And then the entire thing is over in the span of probably five minutes. And we get this sense of like, not only are we watching this matter-of-factly documentary style, but we're watching it far away or we can't do anything. So there's like this impotent feeling where not only is the resistance itself almost pointless, completely impotent but so are we and so is adrian brody's character because we're far away and just kind of watching this all happen from start to finish and then they lose mm -hmm. it, uh, there's just something about about that that does play up the horror element that you're that you're talking about but in that first scene kind of going back to all of these horrible things that happen part of my brain was saying this is gratuitous but it gets a pass because you can say, well, it really happened. I mean, check the history books. This is real. But I guess the real question is, is should it get a pass for that? Is it actually gratuitous? Or, you know, are we, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm personally so, torn on it. So, you know, my, uh, I watch all these movies edited, the, the super graphic stuff I cut out and, you know, the language and stuff. Um, Saving Private Ryan comes to mind for me because I remember I, I've seen that a couple different times, both times edited. Um, but my grandfather um, was saying that everyone should watch that unedited. Make sure, you know, you should watch that movie mm -hmm. because people need to understand what, how bad war really is. It's sort of like a, an anti-war movement, you know, <laughs> see how bad the, the, you know, what it's really like. Do you want to send your, you know, young American, you know, men and women out to battle to experience this, what you're about to see, which is, you know, the, the horrors of it. Um, so I think that is interesting. Can it be gratuitous if it really happened like that? Where's the line between it, our natural reaction to that horror and a response to artistic craft? Mm -hmm. I think that line is completely blurred in movies like these. Yeah. And I, I guess let me just get into my question because you brought up the edited thing. I was going to ask about that. And then we'll get to your golden take afterwards, just okay, so we sure. don't jump around like crazy here. Yeah. So there's there's a key scene here. I'm going to talk about another terrible thing that happens in this movie <laughs> full of terrible things. Yeah. Uh, where a Nazi lines up a group of Jewish people. He picks about 10 from the line, pulls them forward. Then, seemingly without feeling, robotically, he takes a gun from his holster and he shoots each one in the head. Shot, takes a step, shot, takes a step, gets down to the very last person pulls the trigger, but his clip is empty. Meanwhile, he laid everyone on the ground for this, so he's just taking a step and shooting down toward the pavement. 
So when he realizes this clip is empty, Polanski never pulls away. There are no cuts. We still just see a static shot of the bodies behind him and him takes the a new clip from his holster, takes the old one out, puts the new one in, cocks it, makes sure that he's good to go, and then points his gun down and shoots him again, shoots the last guy. This scene to me is, I don't know, the wheelchair one's probably the worst, but this is maybe <laughs> the second worst, and it's because of that pause, mm -hmm. because we're meant to sit in it and just like, you know, going back to that impotence, kind of feel like, what is there to do? There's so much casual violence in this movie and the way that he shoots it so plainly, it just, it just heightens all that horror. And I think that that's his intention. Like you were saying, and like your grandfather was saying, he wants us to feel the reality of the Holocaust. He doesn't yeah. want us to see this kind of Hollywood version of it. So how do you think that that changes if you're taking out what I see as key scenes like that, or yeah. if you're taking out scenes of, you know, just casually walking past bodies in the street if those bodies have to be, happen to be bloody they might be taken out of the edit you're if you're specifically talking about editing it's interesting you bring it up because i've been thinking a lot about this recently um i mentioned that i have been reading um movies are prayers the josh larson book that you let me borrow i since bought my own copy yep and um yeah it's interesting to figure out like i i, I edit movies because i feel like they dull my kind of spiritual sensitivity. This is why I do it. Um, and I've thought a lot about this, whether that is, um, you know, if, if I'm around, I think about, um, uh, you brought it up, you brought it up. So I'm bringing it up in Luke chapter 15 in the Bible, Jesus is criticized for eating with publicans and sinners. And, um, I thought about, I thought a lot about that. Like, maybe instead of movies or prayers, you could also think of as movies are sinners. Art is, art, artworks are sinners. Hmm. You don't necessarily, um, if, if, I mean, we're all sinners. Uh, we all do things that, you know, we're not really proud of. So does that mean that we shouldn't hang out with anybody? <laughs> yeah, because um, the only true way to, you know, <laughs> toward purity, right, is just sitting alone in a room yeah. and not reading any and, books and, and not, not thinking not doing anything. anything. Yeah. But but Jesus ate with sinners. You know, he was criticized for eating with sinners. And yeah. his response was to tell these parables and tell stories, which I thought was really interesting. That's his reaction to why you're eating with sinners. Um, at the same time, I would think that I don't think that Jesus probably Con he didn't condone their, their sinning. And if they were saying a lot of bad words around him, you know, in 33 AD, um, he might tell them to politely stop depending on, you know, you Maybe. know what I mean? You Maybe. know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. um, so I think that it's okay. I've, I've had plenty of friends. You don't, you don't say bad words around me. Yeah, you know, I, I know Did my audience. Say, yeah, well, that's the thing. Yeah. Like, I think that, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with kind of um, wanting to have as, as um, I don't know, as be as spiritually sensitive as I can be. And so I, I do that. But at the same time, I do think that there, the, the editing that, that goes on is certainly imperfect in these, in the movies. Um editing out uh, gratuitous gore um, 
scene. I, I don't really want to see that. Does that dull my but again, sensitivity well, to God? You, you, know, I don't you know. used the word gratuitous before, and, yeah. I, and I always have to throw you in a qualifier it, yeah. that it, it, that's in the eye of the beholder. It is. It's <clears> very and, you true. Know, a gratuitous scene in American Psycho is gratuitous on purpose because... For an artistic reason. Exactly. And yeah. you could make the argument that every scene of violence or gratuity is an artistic choice, yeah. whether or not we understand it yet. Mm-hmm. And in this movie specifically, I think that it's going for that that visceral reaction. It makes it. it he wants us to tense up. Mm-hmm. He wants us to feel uncomfortable. I will say that as I as I like I said, I've been thinking about it a lot lately too. Is I think that um, I'm a lot less worried about violent um, scenes than I am about language scenes. I feel like that affects me more. The language scenes affect me more, you know, like, you know, people shouting the F word. I wouldn't really want to be in that room with a whole lot of people shouting the F word at each other and being irate. Um, and so why do I want to purposely broadcast that in my home? That that's one thing that goes through my mind with, with the language, with, with the, with the violence and especially knowing that this is what really happened. And sometimes learning from that. I don't know. I, I could see the, I could see the case either way. I don't know. But, but I, the, a lot of the scenes in, in the pianist, um, I don't think that there was a lot of violence that was cut actually. I mean, the, you don't the, think so? The dropping out of the, of the, uh, um, I mean, cause you can control it yeah. to some well, extent. Well, how about that scene that I, that I sort that, of started I, this I'm with. pretty sure I saw the whole thing of that. The scene of, the, the scene of the, um, of the, uh, guy falling out of the window with in the wheelchair and you see him land. I saw the whole thing in, in the, in the edited version I saw and him, the other, I don't remember them lining him up on the ground. Yeah, that, and I saw that saw too. That. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess <laughs> I, I, who knew we were going to go, yeah, go down a, right. a, a religious path and then really get into, um, really get into this other thing. But, right. um, it is interesting, you know, to understand why people do what they do and think the way that they think. And is this movie not about religion to some extent? I mean, it, hmm. I don't know. I don't know I don't if know. it is. I would think of it more as sort of it's a survival movie, yeah. a perseverance story. And and no matter if you did strip those things away, yeah. and let's just say for argument's sake that in the edit that you watched, those scenes were gone. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that, that the movie would still impact you because it is about the Holocaust and mm-hmm. that's loaded in a way that we can't escape. But there does reach a line, I guess, where you have to wonder like, are we over sanitizing something to where we're missing the point? Yeah. You know, like at what point does the movie not become worth watching anymore? Or, or at what point are we watching a different movie than the director intended yeah. when we start editing things out and what can be cut? It's if certainly, anything. it certainly is different from what the, what they intended. There's no yeah. doubt about yeah. that. Well, yeah, of course. Um, I've also thought a lot about this recently with, um, I forget which movie we're doing soon that this might've been the fly. Yeah. So, so this will come up again in the fly episode yeah. if, if you're all paying attention to that. But a lot of movies, maybe not this one, maybe not a lot of the sort of artsy movies. And I don't say that pejoratively because I love art, art movies, but there are so many movies that I've been reading about where they take it to the test audience, they screen it. And then they change it because the audiences didn't like it. You're saying with artsy movies, they're doing not, that? not with artsy movies. Oh yeah. Well, you're talking about, I'm talking about like the fly that also products. happened with another non artsy movie that we're going to watch soon. Sonic the Hedgehog. 
So you think that they changed it or you think that they they, toned it down to not to avoid an NC-17? Well, that happens a lot, too. Yeah. Martin Scorsese did that with Taxi Driver. Yeah. Um, There's a lot. I've read about. I mean, the the directors are paying attention to the commercial viability based on the rating. Um, Gosford Park, Robert Altman added F words into the movie so that it would not be (laughs) PG-13. Now, does that sound like an artistic choice for the effect? Or well, well there's what, no getting what, around the fact that we're talking problems. Here. We're talking about movies which are, in an ideal world, you know, eighty percent art and twenty percent product. But really, they're probably more like sixty forty, if not a lot there, less. In there are some millions cases. and millions of dollars at stake. You can't you can't totally blame them yeah. for that. I mean, how many how many commercial compromises do we make on this very show just to make our millions <laughs> oh it's constant it's constant <laughs> but there's so much on the line you know <laughs> but yeah i mean there's no getting away from the fact that certain decisions are made because they're they're considering an audience and they are selling something but i don't know i i think a movie like the fly was never ever going to be anything but an r but you know that if you do cross that into that nc-17 it is very bad because you're seeing fewer people you're not getting shown in the same movie theaters so yeah. In that case, I, I don't really mind so much if you that have to one, take a few scenes of, of yeah. gore out just to satisfy some, you know, some suit who says it's too much. A few scenes of gore, you know. I mean, keep it all in as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it, it is interesting to talk about. I think that I think that I'm not the only person who kind of wrestles with like, is this experience one that is going to... Um, what am, what am I going to get out of this movie experience? But you don't know that until I know. you it's have experienced tough. it. That's so, the thing. So so you use, I mean, the rating system exists because I think that there's a consumer demand for it. Because we want to know, should I bring my child to see Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? That's how PG-13 came about. Yeah. Because it was PG or R. Yeah. Like, do we really want it to be rated R? Or is this, you know sort of gory and gross out more like PG 13, you know, or, you know, and, and there's, there's plenty of movies that are PG that would never have been PG now I, in the I, back in the day. There is a, a popular <laughs> um, YouTube video. It's sort of a mashup. I wish I could remember the name of it off the top of my head that shows just a bunch of clips from movies that were rated PG from that time period. And just the there's, craziness that there's goes nudity. on. There's, there's nudity in, in PG movies yeah. back in the day. But I mean, I grew up on that, you know, yeah. so like that was right on in my wheelhouse where I was watching these types of movies and right afterward um, getting the tapes from Blockbuster popping them in and not knowing what was what I was going to get until yeah. it's too late and now you're you know <laughs> scarred for life there's parents that's interesting you use that phrase scarred for life well I use it I, it's jokingly yeah hyperbole but are there it's sort of like there's there's such a double standard about language in our society because every adult knows that if a kid comes in you don't say the f word around the kid <laughs> yeah. why because you don't want the kid to grow up and say the F word like I no, am, no, no, like no, we no. are? I, I or why I think, is that? I think because you don't want the kid to go into school and say the F word. Why, why does it matter? Because society says it does. I, I don't think that it does matter. There, there are sounds <laughs> so that come out of our cool mouth. No, your no, 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 no. Okay, okay. I wouldn't be cool because society has rules why not in and I need then? to conform in, in a certain way in order to live in society <laughs> as a normal functioning adult. What about in your house then? But you can't do anything in your house without your kid bringing it out of the house. That's why I don't even tell her if my wife's going away on vacation until a couple of days before, or else it's going to cause chaos. You have, again, you have to know. I think that uh, I, I do put a lot of thought into what 
am I getting out of this experience with the movie? Um, and I want it to be something. I do think that there are some things that you can watch and see that are do more harm than good. I, I would argue that nothing I have ever seen has done harm. Nothing that, you've ever seen in your life. When I was a little kid, I'm sure that there are certain movies I saw that made me feel a way that I didn't understand. Yeah. And that was uncomfortable to grapple with. Mm -hmm. But at some point, I learned to grapple with it. And I think that that's the important part is kind of learning to not only figure yourself out, but figure out your reactions, figure out where that thing that you saw fits in the world and fits within a context of a bunch of other things that you're seeing that are a little bit different, a little bit the same. I mean, that's what makes it all interesting. And you mm -hmm. find out more about yourself every time that you see an interesting thing that you weren't expecting or that you haven't seen before. That is very true. And I find that I have a much higher, toler higher tolerance for being disturbed by a movie than my wife does or my parents do. I kind of, you know, almost like feeling like disturbed, uh, like disrupted in a way because it does help me to kind of, it makes me think of things a little differently and it makes me, you know, um, but I, I, I feel that there are times when it can do some, do some harm. And just so, to bring up American you know, Psycho one yeah. more time mm -hmm. is I think one of the most interesting things about this whole discussion is the fact that filmmakers understand the way the, the good filmmakers understand the way that we watch movies and the good filmmakers will use the reactions that we know that we have to certain acts of violence or abuse against us you know we're now all of a sudden our defenses are lowered or they're put up and then we respond to the next thing that we see in a different way so it's almost like a work of music where they're like make them feel this so that later on they'll feel that yeah. this other thing and that's what kind of makes it exciting. I appreciate and give total credit to the directors that we've been discussing for the past, you know, dozens of episodes. Mm -hmm. And I think that these are the great artists of our time. Yeah. However, I don't think that they are all to be trusted as the brokers of morality. N and no, and but, I want- But again, that's assigning morality right. to pictures. Right. Of fake pictures. I think that there is, I think we can't avoid that. I think that we have to be constantly judging um, the moral value of things because if we don't, then, because um, I do think that there are, there, you know, we're talking very theoretical at this point, Yeah. but I do think that there are, there are some movies that have a higher moral good to them than others. And that doesn't mean that they're all clean and, and good. Like, I think that there's a, a lot of moral good and lessons to be learned. And I, from No Country for Old Men, it's one of my favorite movies. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and a movie of moral good, The Pianist, coming from a person of yeah, moral bad. It's exactly. All, it's all gray area, It's very Brian. complicated, isn't it? But I'm glad that the conversation went down this path. Yeah. This is all it's good. It's worth talking about. I'm glad I convinced you to see it my way. <laughs> <laughs> Your golden take. <laughs> Um, my golden take is in a Holocaust movie, similar to what you've talked about. It, it does matter quite a bit that you know the characters are based on real life people. It seems exploitative or unholy cheapening of their tragedy to write fictional accounts of it. That said, uh, I was trying to rack my brain for a counterexample, you know, of a fictional, purely fictional Holocaust movie. Um, 
And uh, I don't... Inglorious Bastards. Jojo Rabbit. Is that purely fictional? I don't know. I, but, I, I would think that probably every Holocaust movie in some way has, has some, some nugget of does. something that, That's that, where that I'm the going. director was inspired by. That's where I wanted to go here because Roman Polanski... Um, it, the movie also, I think, is more powerful when I think that Roman, when I learned that Roman Polanski himself experienced the Holocaust, his parents were sent to two different concentration camps. Yeah, that's incredible. His father was sent to Mauthausen Gusen in Austria, where he survived, and his mother was murdered in Auschwitz at and a he, concentration and camp. And he grew up. Yeah, or at least for this. a few years in the Krakow ghetto. Incredible. The film is based on the memoirs of Spielmann, Wadislaw Spielmann. I, that's my best You nailed it. Attempt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I trust your judgment on it, so thank you. Yeah, I know this um, stuff. <laughs> um, but, so Roman Polanski tried to make it as faithful as he could, but there were things that he changed specifically because it was more along his own experience. For example... When Spielmann, Adrian Brody, is saved from going to the concentration camp and he's told, don't run, mm. that's what it says in the memoir. But Roman Polanski um, was told to run. And so he changed it to run. Don't run's better. In the, yeah, in the, in the book, it, apparently it said, don't run. Is that right? In, no, in the movie it says don't run because he runs initially and then they yell at him oh, and tell yeah, him yeah. not to run. So Polanski, then he sort of tries to play it cool. Like I'm he, misreading this. Yeah. Polanski was told don't run. So he changed it to don't run. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that to me is, is even more powerful mm -hmm. because he's like putting his personal stamp on the real life story. I don't feel like that's a violation at all in part because, I mean, that was his own experience and like makes it, it's like an, an, an homage to it in a way. Um, so... That all is very fascinating and it complicates even more in some ways our long standing, you know, discussion of how true to life does it need to be? <laughs> yeah. Because um, I'm always thinking, I kind of want it to be more true to life. But in that case, have at it, change <laughs> it. If it's your, if it's your story, that's pretty cool. Um, this is kind of strange though. The music played for the German officer in the film. Oh, that scene. Oh Yeah. This <laughs> it's such a good scene. Um, You're talking about it at the end, yes. Right? He plays um Chopin's ballad number one in G minor. In real life, it was a different Chopin piece. Oh god. Now why would you Do change we care that? about this? Why would you change that? Maybe because know. this one's better. Maybe <laughs> maybe Polanski likes that one better, or I don't know. I think <laughs> when I was watching that, I just kept thinking of it's got these like dramatic explosions of sound in one it, like it's such a rangy song you'll mm -hmm. have you'll have kind of these um uh this clash of high notes and, and low notes played together you'll have mm -hmm. these explosions of sound and then it kind of always returns to sadness mm -hmm. every time that that piece is great i mean maybe the other one is a little more flat doesn't have those highs and lows could be i'm not an expert in chopin i should be yeah i don't we know should start a new episode a new podcast about chopin talking music. chopin <laughs> With a with an apostrophe, Chopin show show. I don't know. Talking this this is going down a bad show. talking shopping. <laughs> um, my my golden question um, is: Is there such a thing as a spoiler if it's a true story? Because here's the thing: the back of this DVD, which I hold in my hand right now, mm -hmm. I own this movie. It says that he survived with the unlikely help from a sympathetic German officer. That happens. At two hours and 15 minutes into the movie. Yeah. And it's on the back of the movie. Mm -hmm. That's really annoying to me. 
But but should I be annoyed, or is it is that like saying and the Titanic, which eventually sank? Yeah. Well, I guess it goes back to Robert Zemeckis saying that these things are products, and people want to know what they're getting, and the the movies are McDonald's. You know, the trailers are McDonald's. (laughs) The back of the the back of it is the back of the movie, uh, and especially in a story like this, that's so harrowing. It's almost kind of like, okay, relax. He's going to survive. That is a very good point. I have another secretive question that I'm supposed that I'm going to sneak in here. Okay, because I watched Chinatown recently as my prep for just cause I wanted to watch it again. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, but Chinatown, Rosemary's baby, the pianist, put them in order for me of artistic greatness. Okay. I haven't seen China. Chinatown's the one I've seen the, the, the furthest away. Okay. Um, in terms of visceral power, the pianist, my personal favorite, Rosemary's baby, so I'm going to go Rosemary's Baby, The Pianist, Chinatown. Interesting. I think I think that's my three. Huh. But I mean, this is such a it's such a big, audacious, doesn't powerful get any bigger. work. You doesn't know, get so, any bigger than so it, it almost it almost feels like it should get that grandfathered in stamp of like, well, of course this is the best <laughs> one. But uh, Rosemary's Baby is always going to have a special place in my heart. <laughs> Not the actual baby. Itself, oh God, no. But no, the movie. No the, more babies. The movie. <laughs> Um, what might have been? All right. So tell me yes or no on these five what could have been's, what might have been's. All right. Um, Spielberg wanted Polanski to direct Schindler's List in 93. He thought it was too harrowing at the time. Apparently needed another nine years mm-hmm. to wait for the pianist. It's been a while since I've seen Schindler's List, so I'm glad I'm not the one who has to answer this question. Yeah, um, I, I guess, but then he probably wouldn't have made this. He probably wouldn't have. And then we get both, and they're both, you know, both great in their own way. We haven't really talked about Schindler's List on this Maybe pod- that'll be a Best Picture podcast. throwback episode. It could be. Um, number two, Roman Polanski originally wanted Joseph Fiennes for the lead role. Joseph Fiennes? Not Ralph. Not Ralph. Okay. Joseph was just recently in Shakespeare in Love. Hmm. So I, I was actually trying to picture him and I had to go look him up and make sure I knew who he was because I was thinking of Ralph Rafines. But Joseph Fines. What do you think? I don't know enough of yeah, I don't, Joseph I haven't watched Fiennes' enough. filmography to, to really weigh in on this one. The look he, he was going, he had to work in theater at the time. Apparently it was, it was a poss- real possibility. I think it could work out. Adrian Brody was considered for the role of the Joker in the Dark Knight, 2008. Ooh, man. He always wanted to play a villain, a super villain, apparently. I mean, I could see him as the Scarecrow instead of Killian Murphy. <laughs> I, could, he's, I could see that. Because he's skinny? Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I could see him sort of playing that it's, that line of yeah. like a little creepy, but sort of also like this, you know, very smart mad scientist doctor guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like trying to think of somebody else playing, you know, Indiana yeah, Jones. There are just or, certain performances and, and Heath Ledger's Joker is one of them yeah. where it's like, that's it. That's, that that's all it. we get him. Jack Nicholson in the shining. That's it. Yep. You can't just go and or put Joaquin it. Phoenix as Joker. <laughs> all right. Interesting. Four. the last one, Adrian Brody, was also considered for the role of Spock in Star Trek 2009. Hmm. Think he could be Spock? Yeah. 
I, I think so. I can see Spock. One more thing about Schindler's List before we move on. Yeah. One of my little, my favorite little pieces of movie factoid trivia, whatever you want to call them, is that Spielberg released Schindler's List the same year as Jurassic Park. Yeah, like, wild. isn't that the craziest twofer? They have different years attached to them, I thought. I think they're both 93. Oh, I love Jurassic Park. So people don't flock to the theater for movies about genocide. Nope. Schindler's List is the highest grossing Holocaust film in history. It made $325 million. Hmm. As of this year, it ranked 441 all time on the box office list. And that's the highest grossing movie sort of in this genre. Four hundred and forty. They do well in the Oscars, though. Yeah, they do well in the Oscars. <laughs> um, a little extra on that box office idea. 262 Holocaust movies have been made since 1945. And now I'm seeing, I think that number varies from the number I gave you earlier. Mm. But we're only about 10 or 20 off. <laughs> Avengers Endgame has grossed more than all of them combined. <laughs> I don't know how that could be true. I, when I read that, I was doing like some math to try to figure it out. Like, well, what did Endgame get? Two, like, two like billion? three. Yeah, three I billion? think I think almost three billion. It's a lot of money. It's an inc- It's just a, an insane amount of money. So I don't know if that's totally true, but it's from that same uh, Jerusalem Post article and a, a Holocaust scholar, a Holocaust pop all, culture scholar, wrote it. So. Aren't all the Avengers movies World War II movies? Because um nope winter soldier nope. all that stuff anyway nope. trivia <clears throat> six bits of trivia during the shooting of the movie while scouting locations in krakow roman polanski met a man who had helped his own family survive the war what yeah <laughs> that's it we got to stop the show right there i, I think so <laughs> that's just insane number two how many years later must that i don't have been? know must have been 60 years yeah, later, 60 something years. like that. The film was in pre-production when the real Spielmann died. Mm, he never got to see it. Never saw it. Would he want to see it though, you think? I don't know. Probably. Number three, to prepare for his title role in The Pianist, Adrian Brody learned to play Chopin and he shed 30 pounds off his already thin frame because we have to talk about body transformation. You always do. Every, you always bring it up. Every trivia has to be. So he lost 30 pounds. He also cut himself off from his real life by giving up TV, giving up his car, giving up his apartment, because he felt responsible to those Polish Jews who had suffered greatly and wanted to connect to them with their hurt and despair. A little method there. Yeah. Um, the piano thing I always thought was interesting. The first time I saw this movie, I noticed that too, because even in the opening scene when we it's see not him playing him piano. playing. It's not him playing. No. Because he, he holds that shot from the hands all yeah. the way up the arms to the body. He he must have learned enough to, to get away with it. That's okay. how all of them are. I mean, yeah. the, he's certainly... We'll see just it's enough. It's not him then, at the end with the end credits. Oh, no, no, no. Where that's like somebody legit. That's a real um, Juilliard trained <laughs> pianist. In 2004, this is trivia number four. In 2004, Esquire magazine named Adrian Brody the best dressed man in America. Oh God, who cares? Next. What? That's the worst. Number five. <laughs> Adrian Brody was friends with the late Tupac Shakur and is a big hip hop fan. <laughs> I like that. That's a good one. <laughs> Tupac and Adrian, you know? It seems like a Cruising. weird pair, but hey, that's that's what makes it fun. <laughs> Number six, this is the pairing. You know, you said Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in one, one movie or one year. How about Adrian Brody losing 30 pounds for the pianist and gaining 25 pounds of muscle 
to play Royce in Predators 2010. I haven't seen it. I haven't either. Is that one that you've seen? No, yeah. but 25 pounds of muscle. I mean, that's pretty cool. I guess so. I'm just, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not so impressed with these body transformations because we you are talking do. about people who are getting paid <laughs> millions of dollars to do a job. So if someone was going to pay me 10, 20, I would, $1 million. You, $1 for million, $1 million, how many pounds of muscle would you put on? However much I need 50 to. 50 pounds. Right? I want you to put on 50 pounds of muscle. I'll, I mean, I'll pay you $1 million. I have no Five zero. perspective. I have no context <laughs> of how much muscle that is. So I'm going to say, sure, I'll, I'll do it. But think about it. If, if the movie is not filming for another six months and you're getting paid millions of dollars and you have a trainer and you have a nutritionist, yeah, but how you hard to, is it? Because you have to eat a can of tuna every two hours yeah, and nothing else and lift weights the other 10 hours of the day. That is not fun, and that's still impressive. I don't care how much money you get. It's not fun, but it's also your job, and it's your craft. <laughs> you know, it's your passion. You're doing this. You're doing this. You know, in theory, anyway, oh, for Adrian, a higher purpose. Your predators is getting so close, but you smell so much like tuna. Yeah, predators can't be a higher purpose. Too much. I don't know, but <laughs> but the the millions of dollars speak speak volumes. I think. All right, the big reveal. Keep it or kick it. I'm going to keep it. I'm not going to dance around it. The set pieces are crazy, but mm -hmm. mostly I just, I, I love kind of the nonchalance um, with which Polanski shoots this violence. I mean, I think that it heightens the horror of it in such a way that it made me feel horrible the whole, the whole movie long, mm -hmm. but um, not in, not in a way that, that felt cheap. You know, I really felt like those moments were earned. And, you know, I think about that bedroom, bedroom window resistance scene and, I was thinking during that scene about the implications of that bedroom, but that that window frame, and you know what we're supposed to get from this small view on this very big thing that's happening, and what that says about the perspective of people in the building on the other side of the road, and what that says about the perspective of Adrian Brody watching this from a block away, um, and stuff like that. I, I think kind of proves that there's more going on here than like uh, you know emotional. I don't know, warfare in a way by the, by the director, just kind of pulling strings that he knows he's going to get reactions from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is a clear keep for me. I think this is really a masterpiece. Uh, it's definitely a candidate for the best movie of the year for me. Um, the acting is phenomenal. The music is just perfect. Yeah. Great music. It's, it's perfect when there's no music and it's perfect when it's just a piano and it's perfect when there's soundtrack. The camera work is interesting um, it, so the artistry of making the craft of it is great. Um, the writing, like the line I just mentioned earlier, I think is great. The weightiness of the subject, it's nearly flawless. This movie It's quite, quite remarkable. Um, it's also inspiring. I mean, I, I like, as we've talked, I like a movie that does kind of uplift you in the end. And it does, it does do that, uh, which is another point in its favor for me. So both keep, um, Two the, keeps. Two keeps. The next episode is about Gangs of New York, directed by Martin Scorsese, the great, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, Leonardo DiCaprio, Cameron Diaz, Liam Neeson, John C. Riley. Unfortunately, I'm going to sit this one out for all the reasons that we've talked about before, due to legal no filters available anywhere for this movie. Um, so I guess I'm going to skip skip the the piles of F words. If, <laughs> if there were filters, uh, Scorsese would probably see the new version and say, that's not cinema. <laughs> <laughs> he would. He would be very mad at me 
for for even considering editing a movie, but this Marvel might... and edited movies, not cinema to <laughs> Martin Scorsese. We want to hear from you. Send in your favorite Martin Scorsese movie. There are so many good ones to choose from, and we'll read your answers on the show. You can find us at bestpicturethis.com, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or by telling your smart speaker, play Best Picture This. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Best Picture This. And for 15 years of golden takes, head over to Letterboxd, where you'll find me, Mike Cavalieri. Uh, one of your golden takes on Letterboxd was not very golden, though. What? Are you talking about Equilibrium? No, I'm talking about Monsters Ball. <laughs> I saw you sneak that in there on Twitter. I, I tagged you on, on I know. Twitter when I, I put saw it. There, that. That's the opposite of a sneak. That's 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 putting it on your newsfeed, buddy. <laughs> that's public. Hey, listen, I we didn't hate Monsters Ball, but on number Monsters one movie Ball. of 2001 Absolutely. seems a bit strong it's beautiful. to me. For, uh, for my take on that and for Brian's rebuttal, <laughs> check out my letterbox and check out our 2001 Year in Review episode, which you can find in the podcast feed. Dear listener, do you have a favorite movie from the past that has been forgotten or maybe just doesn't get the attention it deserves? I guess those are basically the same thing. Kind of. Dang. If you become a patron of the show by visiting patreon.com slash bestpicturethis, you can help choose a movie for one of our bonus episodes. For example... The Fly from 1986 was chosen by a patron, and others will be coming soon. I'm looking forward to it. The Fly episode is going to be a good one, it Brian. Is. I can't wait. Oh, yeah, I, I'm really hoping it was that. Super fun. I'm hoping that the edit doesn't doesn't take out too much because there is a lot that it can strip away, but it shouldn't. Thanks there's to WNTF some gooeyness. and Mark Gilliland for producing. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Until next time, remember the best way. To gain 25 pounds of muscle, like Adrian Brody did, is to listen to Best Picture This while you work out. And get paid millions for it. <laughs> <laughs>